I'm Roger Berkowitz. I'm Larry Golko, and this is Name Brands, a podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. Joining us now on Name Brands is Robert Reynolds, President and Chief Executive Officer of Putnam Investments. Bob grew up in Clarksburg, West Virginia, and attended West Virginia University. Before long, he landed at Fidelity Investments and, through a storied 30-year career, ascended to the positions of Vice Chairman and Chief Operating Officer. Though Fidelity head Ned Johnson wanted Bob to stay, Bob knew that the top position would be going to Abby Johnson, so he opted to leave for the head spot at Putnam. Putnam at the time was just recovering from some SEC issues and was primed for Bob's brand of strategy and leadership. Today, Bob oversees both Great West Financial and Putnam Investments, both owned by the same parent. The company's focus is on 401ks, mutual funds, and retirement plans. Putnam today has close to $200 billion in assets under management, as well as some 79 mutual fund offerings and over 7 million shareholders and retirement plan recipients. Bob is an outspoken advocate for retirement savings, as underscored in his book, From Here to Security. In addition to his leadership and advocacy nationally, Bob plays a significant role in the Boston community with business groups and charitable organizations, not the least of which is one close to my heart where Bob serves as chair of the Ron Burton Training Village, which we're going to talk a little bit about later, Bob. Welcome. And the other thing I'm going to get into, in fact, I might as well get it out of the way now. Go ahead, Roger. Go All right. So, so I don't know if you know this, Larry, but Bob was a candidate for the NFL football commissioner. I, I, we got to hear that. We, we, we have to hear yeah. that part of it first. Which part do you want to hear about? Well, <laughs> I, I want to, first of all, how, you know, how do you get into position to be the NFL, uh, you know, commissioner? I mean, obviously you like football, but. Yeah, I, I love football and have for some time. Uh, played when I was younger and officiated college football for 13 years. Did you really? Wow. And uh, through that and through business associations, I got to know several of the owners, including uh, Robert Kraft for the Patriots. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Paul Tagliabue decided to step down, they did a search through Mm -hmm. Corn Ferry, and uh, I think they started with 200 candidates, uh, narrowed it down to 20, and then down to 11, and then down to a final five, and then it uh, came down to a final two. Whoa! So it wow. was a it was a very interesting process. Uh, at the time, I was chief operating officer and vice chairman of Fidelity, and loved what I was doing. But the the job was intriguing because during my lifetime, there had only been two commissioners. Mm-hmm. So I, I would have rather, looking down the road mm-hmm. 10 years, to say, gosh, I'm glad I went after this versus, gosh, I wish I would have gone after that. But uh, mm-hmm. it was a great experience and uh, one I don't regret at all. I think uh, they ended up with Roger Goodell, and everyone can make judgment there. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was watching your facial expression. I get it. I get it. Okay. Body language says a lot. <laughs> so basically, we could have been talking football today instead of 401Ks, right? We can, we, uh, we can talk about whatever you want. You want to do. <laughs> very, very good. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm, imp- I'm impressed with that. Bob, what is it in your background that, that, that launched you into this sort of juggernaut of financial planning, retirement funds? I mean, it was, you know, something I, I ended up in the fish business because my father had a fish market. What, what was it about your background? Well, uh, my father was in the life insurance business and uh, for 35 years, but um, 
in college at West Virginia, I, I majored in finance and liked the investment business, but with the intention that I would go to law school. And uh, when I graduated, I did have some student loans. They had them back then also, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I decided to work for a year or so. And uh, an area that blended both legal and investment was trust departments. And I went into work for the trust department and spent time in North Carolina, at uh, which is now Bank of America, in their trust area. And uh, then Fidelity came after me and, you know, joined Fidelity in 1984. So did you ever think as a college student from West Virginia University, someday you'd be the right-hand person to Ned Johnson? Uh, at the time, I didn't know Ned Johnson, but uh, I, I was always willing to do um, work hard, and I, I've always been confident in abilities. So I, you know, to me, it was just work hard and go for it. So, Bob, what was it that when may had you take the path? Because I know I'm reading the book and so forth that building retirements and enriching people's lives is really your life's mission. Can you share with us your thought process on how you got so immersed in this product category? Well, I, I, it's amazing how different points of life happen. Mm -hmm. And I graduated from college in 1974. And in 1974, there was a major piece of legislation that created the whole retirement industry we even know today called ERISA, mm. Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And the trust department I worked for wanted someone to learn about ERISA so they could adapt to what needed to be done. So they sent me to a three-week school, so to speak, and it was just to update people on ERISA, what the new law meant, what it, the opportunities it provided, and I started. So right, at, right out of my work career, it was into retirement, and that stuck with me ever since. And if you look at asset management, especially during my work career, retirement, mm -hmm. growth of assets, et cetera, has been a big part of the asset management industry. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. With so many people, so many baby boomers reaching retirement age right about now, it's amazing how uneducated, if you will, the general population is about retirement benefits and retirement programs. Why is that? Well, I, I think everyone, uh, part of everyone's retirement is Social Security, and it, there's an assumption that it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. and right. I, I don't think people have spent time. I think there's 65 ways to take Social Security, so it's pretty complicated, and mm -hmm. I advise people to get advice there. But that being said, I you know, the baby boomers themselves went to sort of a generational switch where pension funds were part of the landscape when we first started mm. working. Mm -hmm. I'm a baby mm -hmm. boomer, of course. And uh, the, the whole industry and the country went from a defined benefit society, a pension fund society, to a defined contribution society. And it was really started back in 1984 when 401ks first came out, and mm -hmm. they were bought to the marketplace, and it's, it's called 401k because it's section 401k of the tax code, ah. but it was bought out to supplement defined benefit. 
And uh, over time, it slowly, as people start appreciating having their own account, directing their own investments, and it's soon that uh, I'll never forget we at Fidelity managed General Motors 401k plan, and they actually surveyed their uh, employees at the time, mm-hmm. and their number one benefit was 401k, even ahead of health care and really? all their other mm-hmm. benefits. And wow. so that that was a transformation started in 84 but i think as the 90s came and there's been a just a turnover to defined contribution both hmm. corporate uh, public funds and mm-hmm. not for profits uh, so so was it last year that uh, federal government wanted to overhaul the tax code in terms of 401k's it was every time there is uh, a discussion about tax overhaul because of the way uh, government accounts for retirement, retirement assets always come up in the discussion mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they look at everything over a 10-year window. And if someone's 55 years old or younger, everything they contribute to 401k or 403b or 457, whatever plan you participate in, everything you contribute is considered lost revenue to Treasury. So it's always overstated. So when they need to pay for a tax cut or something like that, they look to retirement. But through the effort of the industry, and I worked on it also, uh, retirement was left alone in the last tax bill, and we're very pleased with that because it's so critical to millions and millions of Americans. So, So just following back, so with the tax cuts that just went into effect now, what 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 is the outcome, in, do you feel, what, what do you believe the outcome is? Is that going to be beneficial to retirement programs, uh, to people's willingness to put more away? Uh, you know, so what is the cause effect of that, if there is one? I don't know. Well, I think from an individual standpoint, most individuals have more money to put away for retirement, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. I say most people do have more money. So that's been helpful. I think corporations, twofold, a lot of companies have taken this corporate tax break that they got or tax reduction Mm -hmm. that they got. And I know that Great West Financial, we upped the 401k match, and many companies have done that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it benefited that way. But I think the biggest benefit, these monies do go into capital markets that individuals are saving for retirement. Mm And it's benefited corporate earnings mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> that these uh, corporate tax, uh, I call them tax breaks, it's not a tax break, but mm-hmm. corporate tax cuts mm-hmm. have really uh, benefited corporations and made this market even better than it was yeah. before. Well, you know what's interesting? I remember back, was it the 70s, when the IRAs came out, and I remember the full page ads. Maximum two thousand dollars, right? You could put in the IRA. I think it was twenty five hundred, but okay. <laughs> you only put two thousand. Right? <laughs> That's what I thought it was. <laughs> I got to call my financial advisor. Like, it it, me could, wrong, it right? could be two thousand. You know how the yeah, money yeah. is. But it's interesting now. You know, my daughter, she's a millennial, 
and she works at Harvard University. I said, Kim, you got to put max it out. And her first natural response is, Dad, I got to pay for a car, an apartment. I can't think of a retirement. Believe me, do as I say. And today, you know, here it is five, six years later, she's a nice piece of change in that 401k at Harvard. And like, she thanks me every day. But the initial thinking was, how can I save for retirement? I just got out of school five years ago. You know what I'm saying? So how are you feeling like that effect with millennials? Is there, is there a mindset? to really start saving now, or are they still kind of pushing back, well, I'll do it later? Well, I think what's happened is the baby boomers are the first generation, and mm-hmm. for many of them, you know, it was the last half of their work life that you've had defined contribution mm-hmm. as a primary source of retirement. So a lot of them haven't had the chance to accumulate as much as they wanted, et cetera. The good news I have for everyone is that millennials are actually saving at a higher rate than baby boomers are. Interesting. Mm. And I think it's part of what baby boomers have done. Many corporations have a vested interest to make sure their employees are participating, and it's a service to everyone that works there. And probably it seems like they're even more well-educated about it than maybe even we were when we were younger. I I, th- I think so because again, when we were younger, everyone just had a pension. Yeah, and right. Now yeah. it's four hundred one k, and it gets people in the market, and people understand what's going on. And yeah. you know, I, I I look back. We were talking about in the eighties, uh, early eighties, when money market funds mm-hmm. were first hit the street. Mm-hmm. Remember, everyone was putting interest rates in the window of banks. Right, right, and right. I'll never right. forget my grandfather, who at the time called me up, you know, in a different state, and said, "What are they paying down there? I need, I need to <laughs> wow, max it out." <laughs> sure. But uh, I, I think that's what's happened over time. It's gotten yeah. people more noticeable about capital markets, and of course, when you have a now we're going on a. Uh, 10 plus year bull market or almost a 10 year mm. bull market, uh, it makes a lot of people pay attention. Mm. What is the state of Social Security these days? I mean, you, you hear these articles, well, you know, next 20 years, it's it's not going to be able to pay out. or uh, And then there's thoughts about, you know, potentially the privatization of Social Security. What, what are your thoughts about those things? Yeah, I, I think Social Security is a real challenge for the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, even... If you read the paper last week, they said this year Social Security is going to pay out more money than it's taken in, mm. and that's for the first time. And uh, if, if they don't make some change to Social Security, and Social Security is just a math problem, so it's easily fixable. Mm-hmm. It has revenue and then expenditures. Mm-hmm. If they don't make changes, the estimate now is by the year 2032, mm. which is not that far away. They're going to have to cut all benefits by 20% or make some hmm. cuts afterwards. So it, it, it's, it needs fixed now, mm-hmm. and that's a challenge Washington has had. It's had for some time. The last time Social Security was uh, changed was when Tip O'Neill worked with Ronald Reagan to wow. uh, reform Social Security. But mm-hmm. we, we need that type of leadership and type of uh, political compromise right now. So is privatization the answer or not the answer? Privatization will not uh, help. I, I I like the Social Security system we have. It's the defined benefit part of savings. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, workplace savings, as we've talked about, allows people to save and invest and 
many comp company provide matches. So I don't think privatization is part of the uh, mm. solution. It's either uh, contribute more, in other words, the cutoff for Social Security's around 114,000. Mm -hmm. You know, you raise th that rate, or you do means testing on benefits, or mm. you just change the calculation. But it, it's definitely fixable. It just takes political courage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, as Roger mentioned earlier, you have a wonderful book I bought from Hits Security, and I just I just want to mention a few excerpts that are really astonishing. I want you to share. You know, your thought process as far as why is America in this situation? There are three things here. One says roughly one-third of American households has zero retirement and we're forced to only use Social Security. Half of the country cannot come up with $400 in cash and they must go to friends or borrow from credit cards. And half the citizens in America will die with less than $10,000 in the bank. Why are we in such a deplorable situation? When you read these figures, it's it's shocking. It is shocking, and it's something we need to do something about right now. And uh, workplace savings covers one half of working Americans. Mm -hmm. So that half is participating in the system and saving a lot more for mm -hmm. retirement. The mm -hmm. other half is challenged. And the Employee Benefit Research Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, bipartisan, that looks at retirement issues, mm -hmm. they looked at medium to lower income workers. And if they have access to workplace savings, 80% of them are saving for retirement. Mm -hmm. That exact same demographic group, middle to lower income workers, if they do not have access to workplace savings, less than 8% are saving for retirement. Wow. So. As a country, yes, workplace savings works for millions of workers, and millions of workers are on track to have more than 100% income replacement retirement. We need to provide a system, and there's a lot of discussion. In fact, Congressman Neal from Springfield has been one of the leaders in Washington on this. Good guy. Yeah, great guy. Uh, to provide uh, a system that covers these workers that do not have access to the workplace. Mm. And we need to do that as a country. So so is that where I, I've heard you mention something about auto enrollment and auto increases. Is that where that somehow plays a role? It, it would play a role in it, but auto enrollment, auto increases works for workplace savings today. Mm -hmm. So back in 2006, the Pension Protection Act was passed. And it gave a safe harbor to companies mm -hmm. to do automatically enroll employees, which means everyone's enrolled unless you tell us you don't want to be. Mm -hmm. And then they allowed for automatic escalation where you could set an amount or every time you got a salary increase, your contribution level went up. Mm -hmm. And that's automatic escalation, but it also provided for what is called target date funds or lifestyle funds, which is packaged advice. And again, prior to 2006, the plan sponsor, uh, fearing some liability, put, just put people in the most conservative option. And if you're a young worker, that's the riskiest investment sure. you can yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So it allowed for packaged advice, target date funds, which invest by your age. So the younger you are, the more aggressive you are. As you mm -hmm. get older, it becomes more conservative. That work for that works for workplace savings. That's how you optimize workplace savings. 
So if you put in a supplement, uh, not a supplemental plan, mm-hmm. but a plan that allows all workers to participate in a multi, mm-hmm. this is called a multi-employer plan that any company, any per- employee could go into, I would say you make it automatic enrollment, automatic escalation, mm-hmm. and then people are in it unless they opt out. And I, mm-hmm. to me, it's the right solution. You, you have this instrument in power, uh, which is the retirement um, uh, facility for people to save. Um, what is the, and I, I'm assuming there's some value add with Putnam behind it, making it <laughs> sort of investment choices. T- tell us a little bit about how that works. Well, um, four years ago, um, Great West Financial, which is a sister company, Putnam had a retirement workplace savings business, and uh, at the time, we bought the retirement business of J.P. Morgan. We bought all three of those entities together and created Empower, which mm-hmm. is the second largest retirement provider in the United States. Wow. So it is a separate entity. I call it a sister company of Putnam, and it's, again, the second largest record keeper and has really led the industry in employee engagement. In other words, bringing people mm-hmm. into the retirement and giving them firsthand knowledge of if you're saving at this rate today, this is what you'll have per month at retirement. Mm-hmm. So equating contribution to what it means as far as income and retirement. And that's really changed the way people think about retirement. Mm-hmm. So Bob, let's, let's not go maybe to, into um, the name brand that you have, Putnam. In such a crowded, you know, called space, the goal is now, you know, always has been to break through the marketing clutter to be known. What are some of your challenges to ensure that the Putnam brand is known for what you want it to be known, whether it be consumers, wealth managers, and are you finding it different today in capturing Mindshare than maybe even like five years ago? Uh, somewhat different because every every environment's different you know we're at a different period in the market uh regulatory mm-hmm. frameworks different uh, mm-hmm. the way people work with advisors is different so mm-hmm. it changes in that regard but when you back everything out putnam is a asset manager a money manager and in order to create brand you have to perform mm-hmm. And to me, it's a performance game we're in. Mm -hmm. Now you couple that with outstanding service. Uh, You do a lot in product creation. Over the last 10 years, we've rolled out 30 new products to really meet the needs of the current marketplace and uh, sort of the challenges individuals have. But to me, it, it comes down to performance. If you're a money manager and an asset manager, you have to perform, you have to deliver for the people to invest money with you. What role, and I'm reading more and more about this, is machine learning playing in terms of, of investments, you know, these days? Yeah, where uh, machine learning is, and again, this is something I, I, I say the early innings of, but the sophistication of machine learning is just being applied to asset management. And if you look at asset management, it's taking data Mm -hmm. and making decisions around data. And what machine learning does is provide you so-called answers or things you're looking to at a much faster rate. 
And to me, it's a, it's a huge part of asset management going forward. So we do machine learning today. Again, it's mm-hmm. improving all the time, and I think it's just providing the arbitrage of information data that our managers could act on uh, faster than the person we're competing so, against. So say versus another company, do you have your own algorithms for looking for what you're looking for as opposed to another company that might be using machine learning? Is that sort of the differentiator? That's a big differentiator, especially it depends upon how quantitatively involved you are. I think if you're, and hopefully these aren't investment terms, but they're what are called fundamental managers, and these are individuals that pick securities, but Mm -hmm. you still have machine learning, a lot of uh, technology involved there because that's the arbitrage information. But we also have a quantitative firm under the umbrella called Panagora, Mm -hmm. and they have uh, technology managing the money. Now, we have very smart individuals programming those, creating the algorithms Mm-hmm. to make sure the right securities come out. But uh, that, that's the difference between the two. But, uh, yes, the ability to have the right algorithm and mm-hmm. it's different firm by firm. Where, where does Putnam see the best opportunities for investments in terms of either industries, geographical locations, demographics? How, how do you sort out these targeted areas to ensure that you mentioned these 30 different products are developed for different market segments? Yeah, the uh, I mean, I mean, if you look at available markets, yeah. uh, obviously the U.S. is the market everyone mm-hmm. wants to be in, right? Yeah. But the investment opportunity is a global investment opportunity right. because many of the U.S. companies, especially pharma, you're competing against companies all over the world right. every day. Mm. So it's it's about having feet on the ground, getting the right research from different parts of the globe. Uh, you may create products that are just Europe, European companies. You may create companies that are global, which includes U.S. and all companies around the world. Or you may create a product international, which is all non-U.S. companies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, it's an opportunity set. We participate in all of them to give people choice and trying to allow people to take advantage of hot areas. One of the uh, real growth areas right now is emerging market equities. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that's more volatile, but when it's um, going, it really goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so if you're younger, that's that where you should perhaps put right. more of your... You should diversify no matter how old you are. <laughs> uh, I can make a phone call. <laughs> so, 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 Bob, this is really what we're trying to get to. I mean, you, we, we want to hear a little bit about your style of yeah. investing. What do you look for in companies? Because you know, your, your experience in Fidelity and now at, at Putnam. What, what is your personal style of, of if you were investing for yourself... You know, at this, uh, what what kinds of things do you think about? I this is called no fee advice. <laughs> I buy Putnam funds. I don't know. <laughs> Are there any other? <laughs> no, I, uh, I I personally. Uh, Obviously, you try to find attractive companies that are growing earnings faster than other mm-hmm. companies, right. and 
you know, for many, many years, ever since I've been in this business, that stock price follows earnings. So if mm-hmm. you can find companies that are growing faster than the norm, you're going to do well over time. Now, that doesn't always hold true, mm-hmm. depending on what's going on in the market. But, it, you know, it's interesting thing about investments. The longer your time horizon, the more predictable it is. Right. So over time, stocks will outperform bonds, will outperform cash. Right. And so when people ask me that question, I always say, what is your time horizon? If it's two, right. two weeks, you want to be as conservative as possible. If it's mm-hmm. 20 years, you want to be pretty aggressive. Mm-hmm. So, so when we had the uh, the Oracle of uh, Nebraska here, he gave us some ta- uh, some stock tips. So now that we have the Oracle of Boston here, <laughs> I was wondering uh, what you could share with us, uh, Bob. I think you should go with the Oracle of Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say Omaha. I said Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think he knows his geography. <laughs> Very good, very good. You you are uh, involved in a an organization very close to my heart, the Ron Burton Training Village. Um, how did you get involved with that? Yes, this is one of the uh, uh, life changing moments to mm-hmm. me. Um, I got involved through a friend, Chuck Clow, who uh, was being the dinner chair, and they asked me, "Can we honor you?" for the work I've done in the community. And I said, I obviously knew Ron Burton to the history of the Patriots, but not right. that much about the training village. And mm-hmm. I said, let me learn more. And I met Paul Burton and young Ron and started meeting the family Joanna, and yeah. was absolutely blown away by the work mm-hmm. uh, being done by the Ron Burton training village. And so, Ever since then, and this this has been probably six years ago, I've been actively involved and very pleased to be chairman of uh, the group that's really behind the training village. But when you look at it, it is uh, through the love and uh, mm-hmm. whatever adjective you know it, with, it, it, with it, a Burton I, family. You know, it's funny when I, when I talk about Ron Burton and and. Uh, Ron was a friend for many years when he was at Hancock, and, and he was a, a customer. Mm-hmm. I got to know him. I can't talk about this guy without tearing up. I mean, he is one of the most inspirational people. He's, he's since passed away. But mm-hmm. the, the story of Ron Burton, and Ron uh, grew up uh, in Ohio. Uh, he was raised by his grandmother. They were dirt poor. The, the city, the little town he grew up in actually you know, took up a collection so he could have uh, luggage to go away to school. He played mm-hmm. at Northwestern. Uh, uh, was a was a was an All American. Was the first person chosen in the um, in the old AFL uh, by the Patriots. Uh, he had a very good career, and then went off into uh, became a um, uh, insurance guy at at Hancock, and always said. I've got to give back. I was given so much, I've got to give back. He inspired his family. Mm-hmm. And and this guy went out and he 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 leveraged everything he owned uh, in, to open a camp in central Massachusetts. His family helped him build it. And he gets kids that were sort of like him growing up or kids that would have gone off the beaten mm-hmm. track um, to uh, that might have been into gangs or drugs or whatever. 
and and he he has sort of like a physical and 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 you know sort of an educational athletic camp boot camp for kids and but, spiritual and spiritual and yeah, spiritual right, right. and i would say what is it now you would know better than i but most almost everyone at this camp ends up with a college, college scholarship yep, that's great yeah they awesome i i, f- I mm. forget the exact numbers but they had eight uh kids this year that were presidents of their freshman class that is went to un- Burton training village is unbelievable but the stories i love many of the same stories but when ron burton was young he got cut from the junior high team and mm-hmm. he went to his coach so torn up because he mm-hmm. he loved football and the coach said listen if you run seven miles a morning at 4 30 in the morning i guarantee you'll be a great player and he became all state and all american etc and part of the camp and kids young men contribute or uh, dedicate seven summers to this camp and every morning they get up at 4 30 and run seven miles really and uh it's it's truly amazing and the impact it has on lives is phenomenal the other great thing about me is the family has kept the legacy going Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there were four Mm -hmm. sons and a daughter and of course mrs burton still very Mm -hmm. very involved and it's just a great, great story, and I would encourage everyone to learn about it and, if you can, get involved in it. So talking about going forward in football, if we expand football now into what's called Gillette Stadium, you have the Putnam Club. What's the reason you created this relationship with Gillette Stadium, and also how are you able to measure how successful this sponsorship is? Yeah, at the time uh, I joined Putnam, Putnam had been to a, a period where they were challenged, and uh, a lot of it had to do with products and performance, mm-hmm. which I've talked about, which, wh- how do you create a great investment firm, which we've right. been able to dramatically turn around. But at the time, I, I wanted to create the message that this is quality, and I don't think you can find a higher quality organization than the New England Patriots and what they've accomplished and what they continue to accomplish Mm -hmm. in the Kraft family. So being able to partner with them in the Putnam Club and the parking lot's called Putnam Field and the road in is called Putnam Putnam Parkway. There's a lot of Putnam going on there. (laughs) We love it. We love it. But it's it's just being associated with a first-class organization Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the what you try to do is associate yourself with great names. Other great brands, right? Mm-hmm. And you asked about measuring it, that there are ways to measure it, uh, you know, companies that do that. And we we think it's one of the great investments we've made as a company into uh, our partnership with the Patriots. And it's worked so well, we now have a partnership with the Boston Celtics. Ah. And the turnaround of the Boston Celtics can be attributed to their affiliation <laughs> with, with Putnam <laughs> Investments. I, I, I knew that. I somehow knew that. Uh, hey, Bob Reynolds, thank you very much. President and CEO of Putnam Investments, this has been uh, an education and a pleasure having you with us. Uh, you can get Bob's book, From uh, Here to Security, uh, at Bookstores are online, I'm sure, at Amazon. Yes, yes. And next time all our all our viewers, when they hear your name or tune in, they're going to be that much wealthier from the yeah. information you've shared. <laughs> I have a Putnam associate that owns a bookstore, so you can buy a bookstore <laughs> or online. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Okay. Pleasure, Bob. Okay. Remember to subscribe to Name Brands on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app 
and get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. We're at Name Brands Pod on Twitter or on Facebook at Name Brands Podcast. That's it for us. We'll be back to talk to you again next week.